So we are looking at the book of Matthew. So if you have a Bible or as a Todd said earlier, his Bible phone device, some sort of a device where you tap on a Bible <laughs> or you open one, go ahead and do that and find the book. Of... Todd, you have an actual Bible now. Oh, you forgot, so you had to go get your Bible. I got you. I got you. Good thing you had it on backup. You got a boy. Nice work. Nice work. So we're looking at the, the book of Matthew, and we're in chapter 13. Now, there are three words that I've asked you to remember from the last couple of weeks about the book of Matthew, that, uh, because the, our, the series is called Follow Me, and what does follow me mean? It means three words. The first one is hear. Remember the next two? Believe and obey. That's right. Hear, believe, and obey. Okay? So follow me. We want to imitate and obey Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to be a disciple? It means to imitate and obey Jesus in the power of the Spirit. And I'll say it again with the most robust smile I've got. If we aren't imitating and obeying Jesus, you're not a disciple. You might be a fan. You might, as he walks by, give a little clap, but you're not a disciple. And he calls us to be his disciple. Amen. So what you need to do is imitate and obey Jesus. Surrender to him as your Lord. Receive into your life his, his spirit. He wants to share his spirit with you. So by his spirit, living in vital contact with his spirit, you can imitate and obey Jesus. Amen. Amen. Make sure we get that clear. All right. So as we're walking through the book of Matthew, it tells us what does it mean to follow Jesus? Who is Jesus? Well, we've learned this. He's a great big Jesus. Right? So who is Jesus, and what does it mean to be his disciple, and what, can we, what does he expect from us? What can we expect from him? What's it like being a disciple of Jesus? All of this, the book of Matthew teaches us. And what we, uh, I, was, I must have said something good, somebody rang a bell. Uh, uh, what we uh, are now in, we're in a shorter uh, portion of Matthew, where we're in parables. I say a shorter portion because Matthew organizes his text theologically into sections of, uh, of uh, narrative and then teaching. Now, it does follow a general chronology, his, his, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection. But in the middle of his, just his lifetime, he organizes the ministry of Jesus more theologically than historically. So but more than we would say chronologically. That's why sometimes you read the, the Gospels and some of the stories don't, aren't always in the same place. That's because the Gospel writers, to be, just to be candid, could have cared less about that. As far as, you know, whether it was a Thursday or a Monday or, a, or February or March was irrelevant. That wasn't the point. The point was the truth and the power of what was happening. And then as writers, they, would or, they wanted to communicate ideas, so they would organize events around ideas. And so what Matthew does is he actually has five sections in his book. The life of Jesus is broken up into five sections. And if you are a, a Bible boy or a Bible girl, that should sound like, oh, Matthew's writing to a primarily Jewish Christian audience. His text is up, broken up into five major sections as if it were the new Pentateuch. Okay, the first five books of the Bible. Just Matthew's literary organization. So now we're at another teaching section, and he has, he's, brought us to our, he's brought to our attention the parables of Jesus. Par- Jesus taught parables, yes? yes? Parables are stories that use the natural events, the natural, their, people's natural surroundings. They, they are used in order to communicate spiritual realities. But are parables just stories? 
No. Stories make us go, oh. Parables often make us go, ah. Many of them have a have a have a have a have a, have a, a plot twist, uh, a shock to them, or they. If we listen carefully to them, if we, we, it's possible to hear them and walk away. It is possible. But if we'll listen carefully, they should grab a hold of us and squeeze us in such a way, apply such a happy, holy, really a holy pressure to our lives that we can never be the same. So it's important that we say, Holy Spirit, help us to hear the words of Jesus today. Help us to open our lives to, start to slow down and listen. Amen. So today we're going to look at a couple of uh, parables that, are, that Matthew places together. They're only found in the book of Matthew, these two parables. And they are, they are placed together, and they're very, very similar. And yet they have a little bit of a different nuance to them. So whenever the Bible repeats something, well, if I re- I'm going to repeat myself today. I'm going to have you repeat stuff. But when the Bible repeats stuff, it's not because the authors lose their place or, they've, or they're on a rabbit trail. When the Bible repeats something, it is for emphasis. It is saying, I mean, all of the Bible is important. Everybody said amen. Okay, make sure that you say a good amen to that one, right? All the Bible is very important. But then when the Bible will, will give, when Scripture repeats a matter, there's an intensity and an urgency to it. Which brings us to our parables today, which I believe that the, the central idea of these two parables is this, that Jesus wants our full devotion. I love it when you say yes and right away amen, then I feel like I can just, I don't have to push a rock up a hill. Jesus wants, Jesus desires and deserves our full devotion. So let's look at these parables, uh, the two of them together. And they're a little bit more brief today. Uh, 13, beginning 44 through 46. Oh, we can read them together. Let's do that. Are you ready? Let's read this. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went out and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away, sold everything he had, and bought it. Wow. Okay. Now, let's lean in and hear what these parables are saying to us. Are you ready? Both of them begin, you see, both of them begin by Jesus saying, the kingdom of heaven is like. Everybody say say that out loud with me, will you? The kingdom, he wants, Jesus is wanting to tell us about the kingdom. You know, I don't really have the, I'll take the time, even though I don't think I have it. Jesus always changed the subject to the kingdom. Whatever people were talking about, he would change the subject to the kingdom. Uh, If he said, uh, you read in your Bible, someone will, Jesus is teaching and someone bellers and interrupts him and says something like, blessed is the woman who gave birth to you. And, you know, sure, that's true. And if, we're, if we were saint so-and-so, we'd say amen and we'd do things. And uh, i got to be careful, Richard, keep me on track. Uh, 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 but instead, Jesus changed the subject. And he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word and obey it. Okay? Someone else said, master, tell my brother to divide the inheritance. 
And he said, what in the world do I, who, put, who appointed me judge? And then he changed the subject to real judgment, to the final judgment. In other words, he's always changing the subject to the kingdom. I almost imagine today, you know how, you know, I'm just going to go there. People want to politicize everything, right? And uh, whether you should, you know, do this or not that. And, and uh, I, I think he would say, don't be so worried about, you know, he might, people say, Jesus, what about viruses? He'd say, what about sin coming out of your mouth? And he wouldn't even, he doesn't even answer our questions. He changes them to the kingdom. <laughs> That's the way he was. So he wants to talk to us about the kingdom. So he says this now, both, uh, he says the kingdom, by the kingdom. You say, what does that mean? Well, we understand this to mean the saving rule of Jesus Christ. The saving rule of Jesus Christ. That saving rule begins now, but there's more to come. The kingdom is when? It's now, but there's more to come. It is a reality that we live in right now, and that reality includes our repentance from and forgiveness of sin. Four of us, amen with that. That happened last night, too. It got quiet. We had like 100 people outside in the yard. They got quiet right there. The kingdom now includes our repentance from and forgiveness of sin. And it includes us now imitating and obeying Jesus in the power of the Spirit. The kingdom has lived now in the power of the Spirit. We have been sealed with that down payment of the Spirit. But there's more to come. Forever, we, there will come a time when we will be forever saved from the power and penalty of sin and hell. Hell itself. Satan himself, the beast, the dragon, the bad guy, the boogeyman, everything, even death, will be forever thrown into a burning furnace, and the people of God will live in freedom and in righteousness for eternity with Jesus. So the kingdom begins now, there will be a judgment, and then there will be an ever after. No wonder that's all Jesus wants to talk about. Because every, when you, in comparison, nothing else really matters. So he tells us, he says, the kingdom of heaven is like, what, is, what does he want to tell us about the kingdom today? In the first parable, we hear that the kingdom is like a treasure hidden in a field. Now, probably to most of us, that sounds a little wanky, a little weird, right? But again, if we lean into our first century audience, they did not have First Bank of Bethesda. They didn't have that, or or Second Bank, or, you know, uh, Galilee Central, nothing. They didn't have banks. So if you had something of considerable value, you buried it. You buried it. Now, we're not being pirates, but they buried it, especially in Palestine, because uh, if, you know any, if you know a little bit about the history, pretty much everybody was fussing and fighting over who wanted that territory. Uh, right? I mean, you have, you have uh, the Canaan, and then you have uh, you know, the northern and the southern kingdoms of, of Israel fussing for a long time. After that, you've got Assyria coming this way and Babylon coming the other direction. Then you've got Persia coming one way. Then eventually, who do you got? You've got old, you got old, old, old Xander, old brother Xander. Alexander the Great comes walking around, stomping through things, taking over stuff. Then his, he's got four generals, and then two of them fight, and then Rome comes along. That whole place was constantly being fussed and fought over. So if you had something of value, you didn't have a lot of guarantees that you were going to be able to keep it. 
There's, and people have found uh, in, 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 in modern times uh, uh, record stories that the, of, of clay jars filled with gold coins from the time of Alexander the Great. Meaning someone's like, well, I, what am I, oh. right? What am I going to do with these gold coins? Bury them and, hope out and, and come back for them later. But then if you don't come back, what happens to your treasure? Still in there. And so what would happen, it, it was not uncommon for people to find in a field treasure. So when Jesus says it's like a treasure hidden in the field, people go, oh, yeah, that happened to my Uncle Harry. <laughs> but here was the deal, and it, and, it, and it wasn't, and you might say, oh, he found it and he didn't report it. No. No. You don't have to do that. It was perfectly legal. There was essentially, the, the rule was finders keepers. Essentially, it was, but there was a caveat. If you found it, you could, you could keep it, but there was one requirement. What do you think it was? It's in the, it's in the parable. You had to buy the field. To, to, if you wanted what you found, in the, if you wanted what you found, if you wanted the treasure, you couldn't just extrapolate the treasure and, and bail out. You had, to, you had to buy the whole field. There was a, a thorough commitment. He found a treasure, and, he had to, and he, so he, he, had to, he, had, he had to buy a field. But... Uh, what do we see in here is that this, this guy, Jesus said, is like someone who finds this treasure, and, and he, he finds it, and for joy over what he found. He is, ab- I mean, I would probably get my shirt untucked if I tried to imitate that, but imagine over the ex- exuberant, his exuberant joy over what he found compelled him to a radical response. And what does he do? He sold everything in order to acquire that field. He, he sold all that he had. How much was that? There's no quantitative amount here. There's a qualitative amount. It's not unusual for Jesus to use numbers. The, the gospel writers use numbers, 153 fish, 10 this, that. When we, get to, when we get to the parable of the pounds and stuff, he'll talk about 10 talents and 5 talents and drachmas and pounds and all that. If he wants to use a number, he's not afraid to. But he doesn't use it. He doesn't say, and he found a field that cost him 14 denarii. I don't, I don't know. What, but he didn't use that. What did he say? He, he, he found it, he found this treasure, and he went and he sold all he had. What if he had $5? It would have cost him all he had. Okay, what if he had five dollars? It would have cost him what if he would have, what if he had five bazillion dollars? What would it have cost him? You gotta feel that. You have to feel that it cost him everything. That's the point. In the second parable, we have a merchant now. A merchant who is searching pearls. Now, again, you and I today, we think, you know, it would have made more sense if Jesus said diamonds or something. Got a hearty amen for Mrs. Dab just now. (laughs) But there's a couple of things. First century, pearls were highly sought after, deeply desired, extremely valuable. And the, the, the rabbis talked about pearls the, in rabbinic tradition. Uh, the pearl, have you, what, what, think about the metaphors that you hear when you think of pearl. 
You think of pearl of wisdom, don't you? Pearl of wisdom, exactly. A pearl represented the study of the Torah or wisdom itself. So it was, it was a pearl you know, stood for wisdom. It, stood, it was a physical uh, embodiment of truth, of God's truth. And they were just highly desired, uh, uh, I would, treasures, jewels. Okay? So he, Jesus said, so the kingdom is like a merchant. This is what they did. They would scour the markets along the Mediterranean area looking for uh, where these pearls could be found. He said, it's like a merchant who is searching. Everybody say searching. That's kind of important. A merchant, and here a merchant searches and then finds a pearl of great value. Is this the only pearl out there? No, no, no. It's a, it's, it's a pearl that is different, exceedingly different than any other pearl. Its value is greater than anything else he's seen. Other things might look shiny. Other things might have the promise of value, but he found one that was absolutely invaluable. And what did he do? He went away and sold everything he had. Well, well, how much did he have? Doesn't matter. That's not the point. Everything. He sold everything he had in order to acquire that pearl. The implied joy over what he found compelled him to a radical response. So two parables. Some things different, some things the same. What's different in these parables? Well, the real, there's, only, there's only a couple of real significant differences. And that is that in the first parable, the first person happens upon the treasure. They just find it. Were they looking for the treasure? No. They, the Jesus, this isn't somebody with one of those silly beep, 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 beep things. Maybe if you have one, I don't mean to call it silly, but, you know, he, they weren't out going through a field with a beep beeper. What are those things called? Someone will tell me later, okay? I, I knew it. You'd start talking to me. Yeah. But anyway, I'm just going to keep calling it a beep beeper. So this one, he wasn't beep beeping. He was just doing his thing. He was probably just working in the field. He was just going about life. He was not searching for the treasure, but then he found it. He came upon it. He experienced it suddenly and unexpectedly. The other, the merchant, what was he doing? Oh, he was diligently searching, 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 looking, looking, looking. And, and, and he was searching and looking, but nothing, nothing met the need, nothing, nothing satisfied. Until he found the pearl. So in one, we have one who just stumbles upon it, not even looking, but experiences the joy of it. And the other, who in his search, finally finds what he's looking for. In the parables, what are the same? What's the same in both of these stories? What's the same is the value. In both of them, what is found is invaluable. And the second thing that is the same is the exchange. In both of them, the price, the exchange, is, in, is complete devotion. Come on, someone, someone say complete devotion. Neither of these persons negotiate. Neither retain any of their former possessions. They give up everything they had. They find something of such value that they exchange 
everything for it in order to acquire it. Because what they acquire is worth far more than everything they had. In both of them, what they acquire is worth more than anything they've ever had. And neither of them buys the treasure. Not in the store. Not the way it, not, there's no price tags. The cost is the same. Everything. They don't, they don't buy it. They exchange everything they are and have for it. They, 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 it's more of a surrender than a purchase. Wow. Well, what, do we, what lessons do we learn? What can we learn from here? Well, I'm certain that even as we're talking this morning, the Lord is stirring in your heart thoughts and challenges. But let me suggest just a couple of things for us to consider. Number one, the kingdom of heaven is within reach. You are not far. It's within reach. What do you mean when it's within reach? It is within reach of both the finder and the seeker. When Jesus said, when he said uh, the kingdom was like a person who just found it and then a person who was searching for it, I think he very well could have been intending to communicate as he did in other places that the kingdom would include Jews and Gentiles. I know some of you, where are you getting that? Much learning has made thee mad. Um, Were the Gentiles searching for the kingdom? Did they find it? They did. And if you read the book of Acts, they abandoned everything they had for it. Were the Jews looking, searching? Yeah. And some of them, in searching sincerely and fervently, found it. You may have found Jesus, and you didn't even know that you were looking for him. I, wonder, I bet you I could ask some of you how you came to know Jesus, and you might say, hi, I wasn't even looking. I don't know how I found him, but I'm glad I did. And others may have said, oh, I searched everywhere, high and low. I was a search seeker of truth. I was a seeker of truth, and nothing satisfied. I tried everything. I experimented this and that, did everything, looked into everything, and then finally I found Jesus. Here's the, here is the, <laughs> here's the secret. Jesus was never hiding. The truth is, you didn't find him. He found you. I know what it felt like. I know you feel like, I don't know what happened. I just found Jesus. That's because he was chasing you down. I finally, I searched and searched and finally found him. That's because he was calling to you the entire time. (laughs) Jesus is the one who initiated this. He is the one who came to seek and to save. And that's why the kingdom is available for the finder or the seeker. And if salvation itself, the kingdom, even entrance into the kingdom is available, is at hand, then how much more is every other part of God's kingdom available to you and me? Jesus said, do not fear, little flock. It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom, all of it. 
The kingdom for you is his idea. You, as his disciple, you are his idea. The second thing is, I believe that we see here is that the kingdom, not only is it within reach, the kingdom is more valuable than anything. The kingdom is more valuable than anything. There is nothing more important than following Jesus. There is nothing more urgent than following Jesus. I want you to see that in both of these parables, there was no delay. I know... Elsewhere in the scriptures, we're told to count the cost. But remember, right next, we've already looked at this in Matthew, right next to where we're told to count the cost, where Jesus also says, let the, bed, the dead bury their own dead. Count the cost, but don't wait a split second to follow Jesus. We don't follow him on our own terms. We don't follow him on our own schedule. We can't set an alarm. It's interesting to me that people want to they talk about something important or, or urgent and they'll set a date for it out sometime else. Sometimes people say, we're going to schedule revival out for two months. We're going to have... Wait, what? If your house is on fire, get out right now. Well, the house is on fire. We should probably schedule a time to leave. We want to make sure we get enough emails out to let everyone know the house is burning, and when we plan to leave. Get out! <laughs> and if you know, if you can hear his voice today, follow him now. Follow him now. There is an urgency to this kingdom. The kingdom is so valuable, I want to say one more thing about it. In, that, in this way, and just for believers who we are trained and we should to share our testimony, right? But as you share your testimony, as you talk about your testimony, make sure that you understand that your testimony, our testimony, is not what we have given up. It is what we have gained. My testimony is, well, you know, I used to be a bazillion dollar stockbroker and have Mercedes, but I gave all that up just for Jesus. Oh, you, wow, you are that was really big of you. If that's your testimony, you haven't seen the kingdom. Our testimony is not what we've given up. It's everything we've gained. The third thing is this. The kingdom requires full devotion. Jesus Christ desires and deserves our full devotion. <laughs> okay. The only way in is all in. Anyone who would enter the kingdom must do so with total devotion and a complete exchange. It's the only way. Nobody, not the stories, there is no part, there is no parable for, and he found a treasure and he negotiated for it. He found a treasure. He set it aside and he set his clock to get back to it later. He, he found a treasure and thought, well, that's interesting. I'll keep an eye on it and see if I can't like, enjoy some. No, the, the, there's only one response. The only, the only perspective Jesus provides for us is if you find this pearl of great price, the only thing to do is abandon everything. 
to exchange any other loyalty, any other affection, any other goal, any other idol, and say, Jesus, you are my Lord. I follow you. Take all of me. And, it's, and I'm privileged that you would say yes to me, Jesus. Why, why, why? Parenthetically, time out. Why do we beg people to follow Jesus? I mean, I want them to. I don't want anyone to perish. So I get that part. But the idea that we're, that we're, that we're somehow talking people into doing Jesus a favor. You know, Jesus is a nice guy. You do me a favor if you followed him. Make his day. He's feeling down. He's not feeling down. Anyone who would follow Jesus must do so with their full devotion. The kingdom requires full devotion. Full devotion is permanent. Full devotion is permanent. The exchange is permanent. If you've given up all that you have, that means you no longer have anything you had. No attachment to it, no affection for it, no loyalty to it. You've given it up for the treasure and nobody regrets it. There's no part of the parable that said, and later on the the merchant regretted possessing the pearl of great price. There is nothing left behind us. Everything is traded for the kingdom. There is a, in these parables is the tone of finality, totality, never going back, forever fidelity, an unyielding devotion to Jesus. So how do we respond to this? What challenge do, what challenge do these two parables present to us today? Well, I hope the Holy Spirit is challenging you in all kinds of ways, but let me suggest at least two questions as we close. First of all, have you come to Jesus with full devotion? Have you come to him with full devotion? Jesus said, the book of Matthew chapter 16, we'll read this in a, little, in a few weeks. He said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their crosses and follow me. For, every, for whoever wants to save their life, that means keep it for themselves, will lose it. If you come upon the treasure and say, mm, I think that treasure's great, but I want to hold on to the little grubby stuff that I have, you'll lose it all. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Whoever comes, finds the treasure, and exchanges all they have will find the treasure. Verse 26, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world but forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? The Apostle Paul understood this in Philippians chapter 3. He said about his own life, he said, but whatever were gains to me, his, his former life, whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Verse 8, what is more, I consider Everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For Paul, it wasn't a matter of what he gave up. It was was about what he gained. 
the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, he said, that I might gain Christ. Coming to Jesus requires my full devotion. Being born again requires your full devotion to Jesus Christ. The only way in is all in. The second challenge, I think, that I feel from this as I was meditating on this is not only do we have to come to Jesus with full devotion, we follow him with full devotion. I follow him. The way that I begin following Jesus is the way that I must continue following Jesus. The only way, I can only, I can only find him with full devotion and I can only follow him with full devotion. I only find him with full devotion and only follow him with the same. Luke chapter 9 verse 62, Jesus said, no one who puts a hand to the plow and then looks back is fit for service in the kingdom. I follow him full devotion. Remember we talked about Paul just a moment ago in chapter 3 of Philippians. He continues in chapter 3. He talks about finding Christ, but now he's going to tell us about how he follows him. Listen to what he says. Not that I have already obtained all of this, Paul says, or have I already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Did you hear that? He knows he's not the one who found Jesus. He knows that Jesus is the one who found him. Well, he knows it because he was riding a donkey and got knocked off it. He knows, he knows that Christ Jesus is the one who initiated and called him. And yet he said, I press on to take hold of that for which he has already taken hold of me. Wow. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken a hold of it Paul writing from a, from a jail here, okay? I haven't, I'm not there yet, but I'm still following. In Paul's mind, there was nothing in front of him but full devotion to Jesus. I do not consider myself to a, to a I, have, I haven't taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. I still, he's still living for the pearl. He's still living for the treasure. Friends, in our world, in your life, there is going to be, you've, and you've experienced, there is a constant pull to moderate your affection and devotion to Jesus. There's a constant tug to dull your affection or to divide your loyalty. Constant. I don't think most of us in the room would be intimidated at all, of all if some literally demon from hell stood up and said, I want you to deny Jesus. I think Dick Cobain would just punch him in the nose. That's not really the pressure that we face, some, some dark demon telling us to, to deny Jesus. But what we face 
is a slow, dull gravity that's real, that is a spirit, that is evil, to dull our affections, to, to slow our roll a little bit. To say, oh, you know what? It was all right for you to be enthusiastic about Jesus when you first got saved. But, you know, you need to just mature. And somehow maturity is defined by apathy. You need to just slow your roll. Don't be so radical. Radical. Yeah, life has a way of wearing you down. But understand that there is a, there is a personality at work in trying to dull your affection for Jesus and divide your loyalties. It didn't just happen. It wasn't just a whoopsie-doodle. We've already seen in the parables that Satan has an absolute uh, interest in separating you from hearing and obeying the word. But these parables remind us that the only joy The only genuine discipleship is found in full devotion to Jesus. Friends, if your joy has diminished, it is likely that your devotion to Jesus has been divided. But again, let these parables press upon you and I the importance, the requirement, the absolutism of full devotion. Jesus. Isn't it amazing? Do you think, what does he want from me? And we want a list. Give me three things I need to do. Ah, no. He wants everything. He wants your full devotion. Most of my life I sensed a call to serve the Lord in a, in a full-time, whole-life uh, capacity, one way or another. But when I was in junior high, middle school, I was at a Bible camp. And it was the last night of camp. They'd gone, they'd gone through all of the checklists. If you've been to Bible camp, you know there's a checklist. You know, things that, that they deal with each night. And uh, we still, it was still when camp ran a little bit long, probably five nights. And it was the last night, and the speaker that night, and I'll say this, this story very quickly. It's a longer story, but I'll be very brief. The speaker that night had challenged everybody that in the room that night, all of the students, to the, they had a piece of paper. And on that piece of paper, they were to write down something that they were, you know, that was their thing, that they were good at or liked to do. You know, gardening. <laughs> right? There's nobody better. Right? Uh, every single kind of musical thing ever. Right? Uh, <laughs> Uh, you were supposed to write down something you were good at and then at the end of the service you were supposed to come and bring that and step on this X on the front of the platform and lay it on this altar and you were supposed to give that thing that you, that thing that you could do that really specialized you you were, you were going to give that to Jesus and boy it was a it was a goalie washer if he knows what, what that's called it was a goalie washer of a service Teenagers weeping everywhere. 
you know, crying and loving each other and giving their, you know, I'm a track star or I'm a football or I'm a, I'm a trumpet player. And they would just lay it on the X and they were all crying. And, and uh, I remember sitting in the pew, holding my paper, staring at it, and it was blank. And I, I, I walked with the line with all my friends and I laid down a blank piece of paper on the X saying, Lord, I, I, don't have any, I don't have anything to give you. I'm just, I couldn't be more average. I don't run fast. I was still very little. Couldn't lift a thing. I don't think I mean, eating is a thing to give. <laughs> It wasn't particularly funny. It wasn't particularly popular. It wasn't strong. It wasn't fast. I wasn't particularly academic. There was just nothing particular. And so I laid an empty page. And you think, this sounds like a silly story. It, it destroyed me. I put an empty page on that thing, and, and I walked out of the chapel, and my friends were arm in arm doing this. You know, they were going to give Jesus stuff, and they're on their way to the snack bar, and I'm, I got nothing. So I circled back around and went back inside the chapel and sat in the back. One of the first times I've sat in the back. Sat in the back and, and uh, sat on the, the little bench and began to weep. Just bawl my eyes out. I mean, tears and every kind of snot. I remember looking, <laughs> looking down and thinking, that's a lot of stuff coming out of me. <laughs> and I wept and everybody was gone. They'd all left the building. I remember my youth pastor came, put his arm around me, and prayed, prayed with me for a minute because he probably didn't know what else to do. He probably thought the Lord was really ministering to me. I was miserable. I had nothing that Jesus could ever want. I couldn't do anything for Jesus. And I sat there for a long time. Essentially given up until there, a voice spoke to me right down here. The simplest one of the simplest, most profound voices I've ever heard. <laughs> and all he said was, I want everything. I want everything. And I said, well, I can give you that. That I can give you. And I ran up to the front and I said, you can have everything. And that changed my life. The only way in is all in. He's not looking for a thing. He won't settle for a thing. He wants everything. Jesus wants our full devotion. Because that's what it means to follow Jesus. He is worth and worthy of it all. Tasia, are you close to me somewhere? Did he, did he disappear? Let's, we're going we're gonna to gather around the table of the Lord together. Talking about full devotion, let's come right back now to the example that Jesus gives. Jesus Christ saved you via his full devotion. And 
for which we are eternally grateful. As you're holding these things, and I can hear you kind of getting them ready, and I know that these are your absolute favorite communion emblems in the world. Before we do, we have, we have about a minute. Um, I haven't done it for a while, and I want our, our online community to be able to hear this. I'm going to repeat now some of the sacred tenets of our faith. And I'll say them, we'll move right through them, but as we do, I encourage you to respond in agreement. Are you ready? We believe in God, our Father, creator of heaven and earth. We believe that God is holy. We believe that God is good and that his loving kindness endures forever. We believe that we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, that he was crucified, buried, and on the third day he rose again. We believe he ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. We believe he shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead, and that his kingdom shall have no end. We believe that he himself took up our infirmities and bore our diseases. That he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. And that by his wounds we have been healed. And we believe that we are to love one another as Christ loved the church. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life. We believe in his baptism. We believe that Jesus brings us into vital contact with the Spirit so that we can live for and live like Jesus. We earnestly desire His gifts. We we rely upon His power. We submit to His blessing. And we welcome His holy and manifest influence in our life. We believe in the table of the Lord. In the communion of the saints. In the spiritual symbols of the body and blood of of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we believe that His sacrificial death and victorious resurrection promises and provides healing, forgiveness, and abundant life. We believe that the Holy Spirit applies now what Christ has accomplished forever. Would you take this wafer in your hand, please? On the night that Jesus was betrayed, He took bread, and having blessed it, broken it he said this is my body broken for you do this in remembrance of me the body of our lord may he keep you in everlasting life feed by faith on his life given for you that you may have life do so with thanksgiving amen after supper in the same manner jesus took the cup And he blessed it and he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out as a ransom for the forgiveness of sins. Drink all of it. Do this in remembrance of me. This cup today speaks to us of of the blood of the Lord Jesus, whom Paul said, Because of his blood we have redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of sin. It is the cup of forgiveness and of freedom and and of forever covenant with Jesus Christ our Lord. Drink all of it today with thanksgiving. Now, I invite you to stand together. Let me pray a blessing over you. 
You might want to open your hands or your palms and just I'm going to pray this blessing over you now. Now may Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, who of His great mercy has promised forgiveness of sins to all who repent and in true faith turn toward Him, may He have mercy on you. May He pardon and deliver you from all your sin. And may He confirm and strengthen you in all goodness. And may His healing life flow now into your body and soul, restoring you to life evermore now. Lord Jesus, we come to you in humility and repentance, giving thanks for your atoning work. And now, Lord Jesus, according to your promise, according to your promise, we now receive afresh your Holy Spirit. Church, in the name of Jesus Christ, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Breathe in now afresh His presence, His power, His influence, His holy and majestic presence. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Spirit of God, we welcome your infilling now upon your church. Thank you for even applying fresh, as it were, the very seal of your presence in our lives. There would be fresh oil upon our lives. We honor you, Lord, in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name.